good to be with you all again after being gone last Sunday. Last Sunday we were up to visit my parents in Pennsylvania whom we hadn't seen for I guess four and a half months. It was mid-March so it was really really good to see them again. We were able to uh, stream a service in Hutchinson, Kansas and see my uh, nephew and niece be baptized. So that's where we were last Sunday. We're glad to be here with you folks this Sunday. <clears throat> I'm going to be picking up again in Genesis on the uh, life of Joseph. I want to start this morning with, if I, does it ring any bells for you? Do you does it trigger your memory? But talk about flight 1549 on January 15, 2009. 2009, now if I add the Hudson River, you'll probably remember. <laughs> I want to start this morning with reading, uh, reading the story of Captain Sullenberger and what was called the Miracle on the Hudson River on January 15, 2009, as told by Gary Enrig. Flight 1549 from New York's LaGuardia Airport with 155 passengers and crew on board was scheduled to take 87 minutes. Instead, it lasted 4 minutes and 42 seconds, ending not in Charlotte, North Carolina as expected, but in the, in the middle of the ice-filled Hudson River. The first 100 seconds of the flight with the co-pilot at the controls were routine. Then, then Captain Sullenberger shouted, Birds! The jet engines ingested a flock of Canada geese and began to grind to a halt. Within 10 seconds, he had no engines running. The engines were silent. My airplane, Sullenberger said as he took over the controls of what was now essentially an 80-ton glider. Still at low altitude over one of the most densely populated cities in the world, the plane had no time to return to the airport, nor were there any viable emergency landing areas. Sullenberger recalls that he felt strangely confident. Even though he had never previously had to deal with an engine failure or land a plane anywhere but on a runway. Drawing on 42 years of military and commercial aviation experience, he immediately radio radioed Mayday to the air traffic controllers. Then, having mentally processed all possible options and recognizing that he was too slow and too low to get back to the airport, Sullenberger calmly informed the controllers, we're going to be in the Hudson. Just over three minutes after striking the birds, the Airbus A320 settled onto the river. The crew carried out a brilliant evacuation, and a number of boats quickly came to retrieve all the passengers and the flight crew. It was a remarkably happy ending to a potentially tragic situation. The entire episode became known as the miracle on the Hudson. Pictures of passengers standing on the wings of the aircraft floating on the river captivated people everywhere. You can probably remember those pictures. They were all over the news. Captain Sully catapulted to fame for his calm under enormous pressure. His own explanation was clear and memorable. For 42 years, I've been making small, regular deposits in this bank of experience, education, and training. And on January 15, the balance was sufficient so that I could make a very large withdrawal. On another occasion, he observed, I never knew that in 42, I never knew in 42 years that there would be 208 seconds upon which my entire career would be judged. 
When he left for work that day, Sullenberger had no way of knowing that he was about to experience a defining moment, a turning point for the rest of his life. Fortunately, his bank of experience stood him in good stead in his moment of testing. And there's an even more important bank where we all make deposits or withdrawals. That's the bank of character. Moments arrive unheralded, unannounced, usually unexpected, when we reveal whether we have enough character capital on which to draw. These are defining moments, occasions that challenge our values, test our commitments, and really they expose who we are. That's the story of Captain Sullenberger and the miracle on the Hudson. Last time I preached, we left, we ended at the end of chapter 37. And we left Joseph on his way to Egypt, a slave. The next chapter, Genesis 38, seems like it's misplaced. At first glance, I looked at it and reading through Joseph's life, I've read through Joseph's life a number of times recently, and I look at chapter 38 and say, what is that doing here? Why does he break, why does the writer break in and put Genesis 38, the story of Joseph's half-brother Judah, why does he insert that and then pick up Joseph again in 39? Judah, Joseph's half-brother, married a Canaanite woman. He was a sexually immoral man. He was involved in pagan worship. And he was, he was well on his way to becoming Canaanite. While I'm with Danny, I enjoy this, uh, I've enjoyed this setting in a lot of ways. That's, the train's one thing that I don't really enjoy. <laughs> so Judah was well on his way to just blending right into Canaanite culture, being one of them. I believe Genesis chapter 38, I don't intend to focus on Genesis chapter 38 this morning. Just going to mention that I believe it's there to contrast Judah's character with what we're going to see of Joseph's character in Genesis chapter 39. I think it also shows us, if you think back, God had told Abraham, Joseph's great-grandfather, that he would make a great nation of his descendants. He also told him that his descendants would be slaves in a foreign land. God knew that land was Egypt, but Abraham didn't know what land that would be. He was just told it was a foreign land and he didn't know for how long. But God had told him they would be slaves and he would bring them out again. They would be a great nation. God's plan, because we can look back and see, God intended, God always intended to take his people to Egypt. Getting Joseph to Egypt was the first step. It was preparation, if you will for God's plan of taking 
all of Abraham's descendants there and putting them in a place where there was a lot of racism, where they would be looked down on. And because of that, they would, they would not mingle as much later when there was a, a large group of them with the Egyptians, but and as slaves, and they would grow and become a mighty, a mighty nation. Not, I don't have time to get into a lot of that this morning, but I, I think chapter 38 shows us why God needed to remove his people from the land of Canaan for a time. I'm going to pick up in Genesis chapter 39. read verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. Joseph faced huge changes in Genesis 39, 37 and 39. He's sold by his half-brothers. He's taken to Egypt. Then he's sold again, this time to Potiphar, captain of the guard. There are things changes, huge changes that he faced that aren't even mentioned in this passage. For instance, things like Joseph faced a different language. He had to learn a new language. He was in a different culture, one that was dramatically different from where he had been. He was in a society that that worshipped multiple gods, not one god, but many, many gods. They even believed Pharaoh was one of those gods. Joseph faced, probably to face racism. Egypt was the most powerful nation in the world at this time, and the Egyptians despised anyone who wasn't Egyptian. Looked down on them. In describing Egypt, Alexander White, many years ago, said, Joseph was now plunged into the most corrupt society that rotted in that age on the face of the earth. So Joseph is plunged into a very corrupt society. He's facing a lot of change. It's, everything's turned on its head, as it were. It must feel to him like everything is going wrong. He's abandoned by everyone, by his own family. Want to notice that in contrast to his half-brother Judah, Joseph chose to stand alone for God, no matter what the cost. Joseph stood alone for God. Let's go on and read verses 2 through 6. The Lord was with Joseph. I'm going to pause there. The Lord was with Joseph. I want you to remember that and notice how often it's repeated throughout this chapter. I believe it's four times that we're told the Lord was with Joseph. Terrible things are happening to him, tough adjustment. But the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man, and he was in the house of his master the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Then he made him overseer of his house, and all that he had he put under his authority. So it was from the time that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. 
Thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. That's where we'll pause. The Lord was with Joseph. Joseph was 17 years old when he's taken to Egypt as a slave. He's a teenager. We don't know how long he was in Potiphar's house before he was given a position of responsibility. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly. We know that, that he became, later he became ruler over Egypt at 30. So at this point, Joseph is likely, um, throughout this chapter, he's probably mid to upper 20s. We don't know exactly where he's at in his 20s. But he was probably there some time before he is given a position, the position of overseer. We don't know the details of Joseph's life as a slave. One thing we do know is that Joseph did not forget God. We're going to see in this chapter that Joseph had a keen awareness of God's presence. Notice in verse 3 that his master saw that the Lord was with him. This wasn't something Joseph had to advertise. Joseph didn't have to say, hey, I should be your overseer because God is with me. Uh, can't you tell? No. His master saw that the Lord was with him and blessed him, so he made him his overseer. It was just a natural outworking of his life with God there. By verse 4, he made him overseer of his house. Joseph had moved as high as a slave could go. He had gone from the new kid on the block, so to speak, to being the overseer of Pharaoh's estate. Told everything, God blessed everything in his house and in his fields because of Joseph. I'm going to move on and read verses 7 through 20 and come back and make some comments. Oh, one, one comment on verse 6 before I move on. Now Joseph, the end of verse 6, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. It's interesting there, the, the Hebrew word that's used is the same word that was used to describe his mother, we're told was beautiful. And it's about to cause trouble for him. Verse 7, and it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph. And she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, look. My master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has into my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So it was, as she spoke to Joseph day by day, that he did not heed to her, to lie with her nor to be with her. But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was inside, that she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. And so it was when she saw that he left his garment in her hand and fled outside, that she called to the men of the house and spoke to them, saying, See, he has, he has brought into us a Hebrew to mock us. And he came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And it happened when he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out, that he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. So she kept his garment with her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him 
with words like these, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought to us came to me to mock me. So it happened, as I lifted up my voice and cried out, that he left his garment with me and fled outside. So it was when his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, saying, Your servant did to me after this manner, that his anger was aroused. Then Joseph's man master took him and put him into prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the prison. <clears throat> Temptation takes many, many different forms and comes to us in different ways. There are many different kinds of temptation. In Luke 4, just before his public ministry, Jesus was in the wilderness and fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And he was tempted by the devil. And the first temptation the devil approached him with was one of food. Why? Probably because Jesus was fasting 40 days and 40 nights, and Scripture tells us, and he was hungry. In Luke 4, at, in verse 13, it says, And when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. I believe Satan customizes him his temptations to each person's unique situation. He is aware of what is happening in my life, I believe, and, and can target where I am, what he sees as my weak spot. I want to say temptation itself is not sin. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, we're told, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was tempted, but Jesus didn't give in to sin. The temptation that Joseph faced in this chapter was sexual. Joseph's temptation, just like to note a couple things about his temptation. One, it was probably completely unexpected. Two, it's from an unexpected source, his master's wife. Third, it was, I'm sure, extremely difficult to resist because this lady didn't take no for an answer. In verse 10, it says, So she spoke to Joseph day by day. This was ongoing, presenting herself, and I'm sure she made sure she was visible and very available, but spoke to him repeatedly. Joseph had to keep saying no. You know, when, when we face, we would like to think that when we face a temptation and we say no, that it's all over, won that war, done deal, and relax. But when I do that, I'll be in trouble. Because often, saying no is not the end of a temptation will come back, maybe in a little different way, maybe stronger. But saying no doesn't mean I'll never face that temptation again. It's a good start. Another thing about Joseph's temptation, Joseph could have justified his 
giving in to Potiphar's wife's advances. He could have said, hey, she's the master's wife. I've, I've got to keep her happy or she'll get me in trouble. He got in trouble. He was going to get in trouble either way in this situation. <laughs> um, he could have said, you know, I'm her slave. Master, so, well, God will understand. But Joseph didn't do that. Fifth thing about Joseph's temptation, we're told in verse 11 that there were no other people. Apparently, Potiphar's wife had laid a trap for Joseph. She made sure no one else was in the house when he came in to do his work. I'm told Egyptians at this time wore two articles of clothing, an outer robe and then an inner around your hips. And when, when you were working inside, you had only the one garment on. And now his, his master's wife has moved from talking to grabbing his clothes, and he leaves without them. I want to point out that although there was no one else in the house, Joseph was just as aware of God's presence with him as he was the presence of the very available woman right in front of him. I repeat, Joseph was just as aware of God's presence with him in that moment, though he wasn't visible, as he was of the very visible and very available woman in front of him. Even if Joseph was aware that even if no one ever found out, God knows. There's an ancient an old Jewish story, it's not in scripture. The Jews said that in this setting, Joseph said, my God sees. And Potiphar's wife threw her skirt over the top of a bust of her God in the room and said, now God can't see. Joseph said, no, my God sees and left. Again, that's not scripture, it's an, it's an Old story is told in, in Hebrews 4.13. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. I will give account for my actions to God. I ask you, how does the reality of the presence of God with you Affect the outcome when you were tempted. Are you aware? Am I aware of the presence of God when I'm tempted to do something wrong? I think it's so important that we have impressed indelibly on our minds that God is present. God is with me at all times, and I can turn to him. Verse 9, <clears throat> oh, my page turned. One thing I want to learn from Joseph's example is to call sin what it is. When society around us calls it 
a little fling. Joseph called it what it was. He called it this great wickedness. It wasn't a little thing. It wasn't a fling, but it was great wickedness. He also called it sin against God. Joseph recognized that his actions affect God. God is very aware of what Joseph, of Joseph's actions and mine. You know, in the New Testament, in Corinth, the church there was struggling with living like society around them. If the church is no different than, everyone, than anyone around them, do we have anything to offer? There were lawsuits among Christians in Corinth. There was sexual immorality in Corinth, in the church. Paul wrote to address problems in the church. And I want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Read a few verses there. Let me pause and get a quick drink. First Corinthians chapter 6. I'm jumping in at verse 9, reading 9 to 11. Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Notice what the members of the Corinthian church used to be. But because of Jesus Christ, there is a possibility of change. Because of God's work in their hearts, they have been changed. And God expected different behavior from these changed people. I want to jump down a couple verses. Pick up at verse 15 in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's read 15 through 20. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God with your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Notice the strongest argument in this passage against a Christian committing fornication or adultery is, the, is not the possibility of pregnancy. It's not the possibility of disease. It's not the possibility of being found out, but it's the fact that the body belongs to the Lord. It's not mine to do whatever I want with. I belong to my Creator and my Redeemer. He has every right to tell me how I should live, what is best for me, what the limitation should be. Verse 20, 
We're told we're not our own in the end of 19. You were bought at a price. That price was the precious blood of the Lord Jesus. He paid with his life blood for my sins, for your sins. You know, God established marriage. In just a couple verses earlier, Paul quotes from uh, Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis 2.24, it says, therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. The sexual relationship between a husband and wife was designed by God, our creator, to be enjoyed in the committed environment of marriage. What Satan has done is tried to remove the boundaries God placed on sexual relationships and just turn it into a selfish pursuit. When I choose to yield to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live in me and give me the power to do what is right. God expects His people to live a life that will honor Him, and the Holy Spirit makes it possible. In my own power, I will feel. <clears throat> First Corinthians 10 in verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you, except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make a way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. I suspect that at, for Joseph, at this point, when Potiphar's wife, takes to grabbing his clothes. It may have felt like it was getting to be too much to bear. Joseph was a normal, red-blooded male, but he refused, and we have that choice. We also can refuse. In fact, when she grabbed his clothes, that's when he ran. Joseph didn't have the New Testament to tell him to run from sexual immorality. But the Lord was with him and prompted him to get out, run. You know, some, sometimes we're, we're told to resist Satan and he will flee from you. However, if you look through the New Testament, there are several times when, whenever sexual immorality is addressed, we're told to flee, run, get out, don't stay there and reason. Or I'll start justifying what I want to do. We, we get out, just leave. Going back to uh, Genesis 39 again. <clears throat> You'll notice in verses 14 and 15 that all Potiphar's wife's obsession now turned into rage. She wanted revenge. She had been rejected, and she wanted revenge. She wanted him to pay. So she keeps his article of clothing with her, which looks very bad for him, 
She gets, notice what she does. First she goes and gets, she calls the men of the house, tells them her story, gets and puts them in the same shoes as her. She said, he brought this Hebrew into us, puts herself with, this, with them to mock us. Said he's, he's brought him into mock us. She's blaming her husband. When her husband comes, she said, that Hebrew you brought in. And you saw what happened. On the, in verse 20, his master took him. He's, his anger was aroused. He took him and put him in prison. I ask you a question. Do you think that Potiphar believed his wife's story? We may get a lot of different answers. I see some heads shaking no. I don't think that he believed her story. Because in that day, at that time, if a slave did what she said Joseph did, he would have been killed on the spot. There, would have, there was no mercy for that. He would have been killed. I believe Potiphar knew his wife well. And while he was angry, and he put Joseph in prison, he had to do something. He didn't torture him or kill him. It tells me he knew, he knew the character of his wife. But that doesn't change much for Joseph. Joseph is still, he's put in prison. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes. You're betrayed by your brothers. You're sold into slavery in a foreign land. You're separated from everyone you knew and loved. You're surrounded by people, a very corrupt society, surrounded by people worshiping idols. And in spite of this, you choose to honor God and you said no to not one temptation, but over and over, day after day, and he kept saying, no, 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 I'm going to be faithful to God. If you do all that and you choose to honor God, isn't now about when you'd expect that God would reward you? If I were in Joseph's shoes and I got to, and I repeatedly said no, I would think, you know, surely God's going to really have a good outcome here for me. I've, I've said no over and over. I want to honor him. But you know what Joseph gets? He gets prison. He gets false accusations. And he's thrown in prison not for a couple days, but he's, he's there for at least a couple years. It's not the outcome you would expect. There will be times when doing right will cost me. It may cost me a lot but that's okay. There will be times when doing what is right will cost me. Doing what is right costs Joseph unfulfilled desires, cost him his reputation, cost him his job, cost years in prison. My reward for doing right will often not come until much, much later. It's called living by faith, living for the future, looking ahead to God's reward that I believe is going to be much greater than what I would have gotten giving in. It's worth the wait. I often tell Micah, good things are worth waiting for.
Allow me to back up just a minute. I, I failed to mention one thing that I wanted to. Didn't make it to my notes, but in, uh, in verse 9, notice Joseph gave two reasons for refusing. One, well, it's in verses 8 and 9. The first was his master has entrusted him with everything. He's not going to violate his master's trust. And second, which is an even higher reason, is that it's a sin against God. So there was, there was two reasons. It's a sin against other people and it's a sin against God. And that's why he, he told her why he won't, but we're not told that he ever tried to reason again. He simply told her up front, no, and here's why. And after that, he avoided her whenever possible. Let me jump back to the end of the chapter and read Genesis 39, starting in verse 21 to 23. But the Lord was with Joseph. There it is again. That's key. That's important. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it was his doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him. There it is again. And whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. Joseph is now gone. He's gone way down from where we started. He was a prince in Canaan, and he went to a, a slave. And now he's gone below a slave. He's a prisoner. But the Lord was with him. We're told that two more times. God is at work behind the scenes, working in Joseph, working for Joseph, and preparing to save many, many lives through Joseph. We haven't even gotten there yet, but you know the story. And you know, it's exciting to me to see how when terrible things are happening to Joseph, God is at work preparing for so much good. If Joseph will remain faithful to him, and he does. You know, when Captain Sullenberger's engines failed, he had a sufficient balance in his bank of experience to make a very large withdrawal. I ask myself, am I making regular deposits in the bank of character? Would I be able, would I have a sufficient balance in the bank of character to make a large withdrawal? withstand temptation. That doesn't happen overnight. It does happen when I cry out to God. When I'm aware, I think it's good for us to be aware, to ask yourself this afternoon, what is my, what is my weak area? If I were Satan, where would I target me? What can I do? What should, what should be my response if that happens? And you think that through before it happens. How should I respond? And then when it does, your knee-jerk reaction is to respond as you planned. I found that very helpful. What kept Joseph faithful, I believe, was an awareness of God's presence. This week, May we remember that God is present. 
that he is with me. I can ask him for help anytime, any place with whatever I'm facing. Would you stand, please? Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your presence. Thank you so much that you know the details of each of our lives. You know what we face, and we can turn to you at any time. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that you have made available to us. When we yield ourselves to you, Lord Jesus, and you give your Spirit to guide us, to comfort us, give us strength in the face of temptation. Lord, I ask you to bless each person here this week with a deep sense of your presence. Give them joy in that and a sense of our accountability to you, Lord. I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.